you want to have the best practices for software engineering baked into all of the examples that you're giving because you don't want you know to give a simplistic example of like here's how you contribute code but then forget like okay well here's how you evaluate the code to make sure it doesn't pose a danger to people <laughs> so that's really important like you have to think through the entire journey of your user and that's going to lead to the best outcome Hey everybody, listen up. Are you tired of security bottlenecks? Well, Sneak is a developer security platform that automatically scans your code, dependencies, containers, and cloud configs, finding and fixing vulnerabilities in real time from the tools and workflows you already use. Create your free account at sneak.co slash stackoverflow. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash stackoverflow. So if you're listening, head on over, support the podcast, let them know we sent you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan, who edits our blog. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm good. So, Ryan, you have been a technical writer for a decade and a half. And these days you edit a lot of developers and writers who write about code. When you think about documentation, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think good documentation is kind of invisible. Bad documentation mm-hmm. is gets talked about more, unfortunately. Sounds like security. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you hear about documentation when people can't find answers. And I think in some way, Stack Overflow benefits from, from bad documentation because we have all the other answers. True. We are the backup documentation for everybody. So without further ado, I'd like to say hello to our two guests. They have been working on a book all about documentation for developers by developers. Zach, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So Jared, let's start with you. Just for our listeners, tell them quickly who you are, what it is you do these days, and then if you don't mind, a little bit about how you got into the world of software and Sure. My name is Jared Bati. I'm a technical writer at Waymo, and I lead the Docs team on autonomous vehicle documentation. I am a software engineer by training, but I was working in several small startups that were doing uh, not so great like you do in the early 2000s. (laughs) I had done a lot of freelance writing. I also had a, a minor in English composition and deep interest in the written word. I posted my resume on Craigslist and was looking for another startup job when uh, a recruiter contacted me and said, I think you'd be a great fit as a technical writer at Google. And at the time, I'm like, I don't think I've ever worked as a technical writer, but I've done all of your job requirements for a technical writer. So tell me more. (laughs) And that was 15 years ago. And I've been at Google or Waymo since. And it's been a wild ride, and I've loved it. It's the perfect intersection of technology and writing and communication, and I love to teach. So it is a perfect fit for me. That's how I ended up here. Zach, do you want to talk a little bit about how you ended up here? Sure. So I'm Zachary Sarah Corlison. Currently, I am a technical writer for Stripe, where I work on the next iteration of Stripe's API landscape. 
And I became a technical writer, mostly because I graduated from college with a degree in English and a whole bunch of coursework in computer science. And I had no idea how to combine any of that. And one of my aunts was a technical writer at Los Alamos National Laboratories. And she said, mm. you should be a technical writer. And I said, what's a technical writer? And that's how <laughs> you get the dinosaurs in a tar pit. You just take one step and next thing you know. <laughs> but no, it's been really lovely. I have uh, worked also at a handful of startups that uh, served some amorphous and poorly defined need in the early 2000s and have worked at uh, GitHub, at Rackspace, and most recently at the Linux Foundation, where I worked in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, Kubernetes documentation. And I love this profession. It is, like Jared says, the perfect intersection of so many powerful things. And it's the intersectionality of the profession that I think keeps me involved, keeps me vital, and makes me excited about the future of what it is that we do. I will say my last job when I was going to build out their API documentation, I asked developers what was the best documentation, and they said Stripe. So Kudos to that. Cheers. This might be the first time we have three English majors on the call. <laughs> I haven't found a good use for my dance degree yet, but maybe once we make the pivot to video, that will come in handy. So we got a little bit of your background, and I kind of want to let Ryan drive because this is his area of expertise. But I'll set us up with a general question. The book that y'all are working on, what was kind of the genesis of that? How did you get this group together? And what was the impetus for putting it down on paper? I think Zach and I worked extensively on Kubernetes documentation for many, many years. We were both SigDocs chairs and led a lot of the open source documentation contribution and processes there to really scale Kubernetes. And we had kicked around this idea of a book for a while on documentation and how do we teach developers documentation because so much of what we were doing was going to conferences, leading documentation sprints, really sharing our knowledge. And it seemed like there was a thirst for this for other projects that were at this point where they had they were code complete and wanted to scale. And documentation was how they could do it. And as we were teaching, we encountered a number of just similar questions from people of how do we get started? What do we focus on? How do we write? And a lot of anxiety from developers of, I don't know how to begin writing and I don't know how to evaluate what is good or bad writing. And I don't know what's going to engage with my users. So Zach and I were kicking around different ideas for this book and we started putting, putting together a proposal and we realized that we needed a, a larger group of writers. We had a very, like, I have a very Google-centric view, which is not how the world should work, although <laughs> Google sometimes thinks that that's the case. And you know, we had uh, Linux Foundation, and we had lots of feedback from the Linux Foundation. Zach was deeply embedded with and working for at the time. But we realized that we had a huge community to draw from from our own professional communities and from Write the Docs, which is a, an amazing just documentation group that focuses on software documentation. So we took advantage of that community and a lot of just amazing talent came to the surface to co-author the book with us. To this day, I'm still shocked by the number of people who said yes when we asked them. The original list of folks that uh, Jared and I invited to collaborate with us 
I think was obviously Jared and myself. And then we sent invitations to five other people and three of them said yes. So I don't know that it was necessarily that we set out to have as large a group as possible. It's just, we worked with the people who said yes. And that ended up being a really effective combination. And it might be a little too early to, to talk about this, but one of the struggles that we faced with the book was convincing a publisher that five co-authors was not the kiss of death for getting a manuscript over the finish line. As it turns out, I can't imagine having done this book any other way. That was one of the most powerful collaborations of my career. The book would not be what it is without the people who were involved in it. I mean, obviously, but it really was an effective and powerful collaboration. I, you know, I don't think we ever had a big fight over anything. We had occasional uh, differences of opinion, but at, at no point did we have, you know, like uh, any sort of dramatics. Jared, I know you, you come from a computer science development background. Zach, do you also come from that background or do you still get started in English? I got started in English. And honestly, I used to feel a great deal of imposter syndrome over being, quote unquote, less technical than other writers and developers in my field. But over time, I've really learned to embrace it as an asset because it puts me in a position right. where I am able to ask powerful questions on behalf of other people who may or may not have the same substrate of knowledge underpinning their developer practice. I always feel like uh, that, that ignorance can be a strength. I say, uh, I'm the first dumb user you're going to get. So I'm going <laughs> to ask all the dumb questions. It's, so I think the, the interesting thing for me is that computer science and English are often diametrically exposed skills. Like, And you come from different ends of the spectrum. How did you bridge that gap? I don't think they're diametrically opposed. I, th I think uh, we're trying to solve problems with different tools. I think that is really what we're trying to do. Like when I write code, I am trying to address a problem a user has. And mm -hmm. when I write documentation, I'm also trying to address the problem the user has. So I'm just trying to meet people's needs, but I have different sets of tools that I use to do it. And I think that's you know how Zach and I really worked together, especially when starting the Kubernetes documentation, because a lot of it was, what do our users actually need? Like, Kubernetes is a massive, complicated project to wrap your mind around. And there's a lot of really specific technical jargon that you need to understand before you start using it. And how do we give people this, this bedrock of knowledge that they can then build on top of? Whether it's you know, code or its content. And this was a, you know, an initial struggle with the project because a lot of initial engineers had a very engineering focused approach with, we would like to create tools that then just generate the documentation. And I'm like, does this actually serve our users? Is this what they want? Is this what they're expecting to read? And I think it, the engineers who were proposing this just didn't have a fundamental understanding of how content works as a tool. So I had to break this down for them. Like, this is how humans <laughs> gain knowledge. Let's focus <laughs> on using this tool first, and then we can focus on automation down the road. So these, these work together. 
Did you start with a cave painting or you just went, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it was all interpretive dance. I was, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> now I see where my skills can come in handy. I had a conversation um, with our co-founder Joel Spolsky when I started, because I was trying to understand his perspective on the value of Stack Overflow for teams, which is like a private instance of Stack Overflow inside a company. It's, you know, a lot of that is essentially serving a function like documentation. And he used a very sort of utilitarian metaphor, which is like, imagine that you are the new superintendent of a building and somebody's complaining about their pipes being out. You have to go find a blueprint, hopefully, that somebody left before you that will explain how things work, why, and, you know, where you should go to fix this. You know, Zach, to your earlier point about imposter syndrome, which obviously I have all the time as an English major on a, on a software podcast, thinking about code bases that are at large companies that might last 10 or 20 or 30 years and pe new people who are coming in who might not be proficient in the same languages or be working even on the same, you know, sort of like OS environment, you want them to be able to have a layman's explanation, maybe alongside a technical one so that they can get a grasp for this stuff and then proceed to unpack how they should work on it. Like Jared said, um, content is the first experience that people have of a project. The readme, the documentation is the first place that people go to learn how to do a thing. And it is powerful to be able to work in analogies that don't do violence to the technical nature of the material, but also speak to the humanity of the people who are there to learn and uh, to read and to increase their own capacity to, to accomplish whatever task they're trying to do. When we talk about open source communities, one of the metaphors that Jared and I use is the care and upkeep of a garden. And we talk about cultivation, we talk about borders, we talk about um, weeding for some of the less glamorous aspects of an open source community. But uh, sorry, just to return to the, the imposter syndrome and the starting from a, an English place, a language place, rather than a software place. Like Jared, I don't think that there's a lot of difference between the two. I think it's just a differently strict set of grammar and that these things sort of don't exist for their own right. You don't write software to exist for its own sake. You don't write documentation to exist for its own sake. That these things exist in order to accomplish uh, tasks or solve problems. Your book is, is uh, developers writing for developers, right? That's the end goal. How do you get a developer to write for another developer and, and have them convey the information? Well, I, I think that that doesn't require a lot of convincing, honestly. I think that the, the same urge that um, motivates a developer to write code in the first place, they're there to solve a problem. And if they are sharing that code out in the world, it's because they care about other developers solving problems as well. And so that same impulse to help and to share, it's just a differently strict grammar by which that sharing happens. One of the things I've run into with developers writing for other developers is that they, they often have a expert blindness and that they are so good at something that they, they can't get the beginner mind. Have you run into that? And how do you teach that beginner's mind? Knowing that there's a problem is always the first step. I think identifying the fact that you have a curse of knowledge and then sort of looking for ways to break outside of that. And I, and I think it's, I think it's normal. Like we're all taught to through academic writing or through writing in school to promote the projects that we've built and to, to sort of talk about them and like the decisions that we made and our own expertise. But that's not how our users want to interact with what we've built. So I think there's two approaches. One is, is empathy of just, 
understand your your user, think about them, think about what they need, what they're coming to your project and what for and what problems that they have that they want you to solve. And I think that's really useful for a lot of people. And I think another approach is writing style. There's a tendency for people to write in the we, like we made this decision with Kubernetes to create this construct called pods. And like, we made this decision because of blank. And it's like, write it to your user, write with you. Like you can use this feature to do blank. It solves your problem by doing that's how you can solve that and sort of work around it. Once you start writing to your users, it becomes a lot clearer to them what value they're getting out of your content. Right. It's very much an applied exercise in empathy. The, the purpose that you know, you're not writing for yourself, you're writing for someone else. And what does that person need? If you want to write, for example, like a, a record of the history of Kubernetes, that's very different from how do I get started? And you, you wouldn't put uh, all of that history as a prerequisite to, to getting started. So like Jared said, writing style, genre, and just a, a sense of what it is that the people who are going to read what you write actually need and actually want to do. I mean, actually, I, like my, my current role at Waymo, my goal is to share the curse of knowledge with as many people as possible because <laughs> I'm an internal writer. We're, like, we're building a new ML model for our autonomous driver Here's all the decisions that we made and the historical background between all those decisions and all the trade-offs that we did. And as a new engineer working on this ML model, here's all the things you should know. I'm like trying to get information out of engineers' heads and get it into all these new hires that we have and get that to scale. But when I worked on Kubernetes, it was how can I reduce the complexity of this product into a way that you can understand and immediately apply and use? So that empathy piece becomes really useful. I had a question, Jerry, which is specific to Waymo. I don't know if you can answer it, but when writing documentation there, do you have to consider things like ethics and governance? You know, you're dealing with vehicles that are moving people. There may be government agencies that are very interested in how the cars work. There may be people who are writing ML models who want to make sure that they're equitable or ethical. Is that stuff a consideration in documentation or is that uh, like a higher order kind of thing? I think that's a consideration across the board. It's definitely something that we thought about within Kubernetes and something that Zach's thought about extensively at the Linux Foundation. When it comes to writing content, you know, we do think about, most of my content is internal. So it's focused on other engineers learning how to contribute to the ML model and like how the cars perceive the world. But something we do think deeply about is safety and privacy and security like not only of the people in the car, but like the world outside the car of like, how do we think about pedestrians? How do we think about cyclists? How do we think about other drivers? And that whole conversation between the car and the road and all the other users of the road and of the environment is something that we, we think about really deeply in addition to privacy of, of people's data. How are we maintaining safety and security of the data that we have? So this is something that needs to be baked into the documentation because you want to have the best practices for software engineering baked into all of the examples that you're giving because you don't want you know to give a simplistic example of like here's how you contribute code but then forget like okay well here's how you evaluate the code to make sure it doesn't pose a danger to people. <laughs> so 
that's really important. Like you have to think through the entire journey of your user and that's going to lead to the best outcome. It's, it's a very sort of company centric view, you know, an open source project. This is something that Zach can speak to much better than I. You also have to think about the contributor side of things of what's going to bring in sort of an inclusive and diverse set of contributors who are going to feel comfortable and included in the conversations around the future development of a project. Zach, did you want to chat about that? Yes. Uh, First, I want to just echo back that ethics and ethical thinking is at the heart of technical documentation and the, the specific application of ethics in for for Waymo's product cases is I mean obviously there's you know the ethics of autonomous vehicles are are not going to be universally applicable necessarily but I think that over the next year I think that ethics are going to be very front and center in discussions about documentation as professional practice just because it is critically important for documentation to be reliable and build trust. Those things are at the heart. They, they need to be almost an unconscious presumption of documentation. And unfortunately, I feel like there are a lot of competing interests to keep that trust from being automatic. This sort of the nature of um, culture and technology. I know that's a very big can of highly packed worms to, <laughs> to open right now. But yeah, just to say that I think that ethical, ethical practice of documentation is going to be a very conscious discussion in the coming year. But specifically for open source communities, yes, I think that the first documentation, some of the first documentation that open source communities need to provide for themselves are things like codes of conduct setting clear boundaries, setting expectations, setting you know the basic rules for you know what what is the space appropriate for what do we do when that space is not held in a way that we agree to collectively how do we maintain ourselves first and foremost so yeah i think that there's a, a really large ethical space around bringing contributors into an open source project in a way that builds trust that is truthful that creates reliability and creates safety. And these things aren't automatic, that we have to be very conscious and very intentional with how we communicate our expectations. I think we need to acknowledge that some boundaries are aspirational rather than necessarily inherently descriptive of where a community is at the moment. And it's good to acknowledge that, to say, you know, we're not there yet, but this is where, we, this is where we're going. Yeah, if I could sum that all up, I would say good documentation tells the truth and builds trust, builds safety. It's interesting you talk about almost like documenting the the community itself. How much of that is community-driven and how much of that is kind of top-down? So I will say this is one of, I think, Jared's great strengths. And one of the reasons why I treasure working with him is that when it comes to documenting the community itself, it's very easy to lose sight of priority to think that because I'm spending energy documenting this community, that this is what really matters. And of course, with a software project, what really matters is helping other people use it. And how this would surface in conversations with Jared and myself is that I would propose, you know, some piece of either like CICD or, you know, some piece of automation uh, to put into the stack. And Jared would come back with that's a tire fire. Why do you need to automate a tire fire? <laughs> and, you know, keeping the focus 
on the quality of the user experience, making sure that it's, you know, we're not burning cycles sort of in endlessly introspecting and that we're keeping focus on what matters. Um, Jared, did you want to, did you want to talk a little bit more about your experience of, of that side of priority? <laughs> yeah, I just, I think it's useful to always have very clear contributor guidelines and clear contributor process. And the I think there's a, a desire to overcomplicate things and to just, I think, avoid that at all costs. Just keep it as simple as possible because every minor bit of friction is a barrier to entry for people who want to be involved. And those barriers, just studies have shown that those barriers are far more impactful on minority groups in the community. So it's important to keep things simple, keep things documented. We had an, an amazing community manager named Paris Pittman, who really helped facilitate a ton of conversations between the folks developing the roadmap and architecture of Kubernetes and the plans going forward for that project and the people working on releases and the people who are documenting. And we all came together and said, this is our release process. This is how we want to work together. And when we conflict, this is how we're going to make decisions because we're not always all going to agree. And we don't need to have that, but we should all at least understand and respect the decisions that we make as a group. She was amazing at facilitating that conversation and like getting us to agreement and then documenting it. And then we've basically run every single release based on that decision that we made nearly five years ago. So once you get it right, it's not like a, a thing that you constantly have to go back to and rewrite and work on. Like if you can get it right, it lasts. The first question to kind of getting to this idea we've been talking about, about how to be inclusive and ensure that everyone who comes to this documentation in the future can understand it and contribute to it as needed. Do you do a bit of cultural sort of anthropology as you're figuring out the teams you're working with, which is to say, do you go talk to them and understand what language they use, what metaphors they use, what story points they use, and then try to mirror some of that back to them in the documentation? Or do you have you know, your own style that you've developed, your own approach that you feel is best across the spectrum of people for communicating sort of knowledge and documentation? I, I feel like the answer is, is yes to everything that you've asked. Yeah. So yes, we do have, we do some anthropology and we look at who's doing the talking and who's doing the listening and seeing, okay, what's resonating, what's not, what's working, how do we communicate? And I think when it comes to language and how people speak and the words that they use, I think there's a really important value for accessibility of, are we using words that everyone agrees with and that make sense to them and carry the same meaning because it's very easy to overload words and this is like naming is super hard in tech i know we can all think of like really bad examples of poorly named products and poorly named features and this is something that you know just not only from a feature standpoint but just from how do we talk to other people about what we're building and why it's useful for them it's important that that resonates with them and that they understand. We also document things in a style guide. So I know the Linux Foundation has a style guide. Alphabet has a style guide. 
There's many other companies that have great style guides that I refer people to. Having a consistent language and, and agreements around how that language is used is really important. When we internationalize things and translate things for other audiences, that introduces a whole nother layer of complexity and things like metaphors become very difficult. So there's just a, a push towards language simplicity, like how concise and simple can the language be and still convey the same amount of meaning. And for anyone that's written, you know how difficult that is. So that's one of the core skills that we bring to the table. But Zach, I know that you developed so much of the translation pipeline for the Linux Foundation and their documentation. So I'm really curious about your point of view on this. So I guess, Ben, to return to your original question, I like that phrase, cultural anthropology. Yes, so that is a good practice for documentation is to use the words that your audience uses. So that, yes, there is some, it's not quite forensic, but like getting to know people, getting, listening to the words that they use, listening to the language that the community uses to describe itself, to, to describe technology and the various components therein, and to reflect that back in documentation. At the same time, because they're of the requirements for internationalization, you know, the language needs to be as easily localizable as possible. So it means that colloquial understandings become like uh, an anti-pattern in documentation. Don't use things that don't really translate across or outside of a language or outside of a culture. So, and the thing is that they're sneaky. Mm -hmm. Like the, even that word sneaky, does sure. that localize well or not? It really depends. But I think a best practice is to write in a way that shows that there is a human speaking to you and that that voice can adapt to be as local as needed for a, a community to hear its own voice speaking. Yeah. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Yeah. I think the thing you both said, which I hadn't really considered, is the global aspect and the internationalization. My, my sort of question came from talking with Maggie Appleton on the podcast recently, and she was talking about her approach to UX design, You know that it was helpful to go in, onto a certain subreddit and figure out how people described something before trying to build it for them. But a lot of what you said, you know, rings is true, which is that exactly trying to do it in a way that maybe has a bit of a narrative and metaphor and therefore is easier to grasp in one domain makes it much more difficult at the scale, you know, that a Stripe or a Waymo is at. All right. I want to throw it to Ryan to see if he has any final questions before we head to the outro. Oh, I was just going to say, I love me some idioms and metaphors and that's, <laughs> that's deadly for cross-cultural communication. Yeah. You know, on top of the anthropology, how much of your job is uh, archaeology? I feel like the primary sources for documentation for me were always using the product and then talking to experts, but sometimes that doesn't give you everything. So where else do you turn for, for answers? I, I never thought about it as archaeology. I always thought about it as like detective work, but maybe that's just like my bias for the sorts of books I like to read. <laughs> I just think that there's a lot, of, the human element of technical writing is huge. And I think there is definitely an archaeological component of like I'm documenting a library and like, oh, it hasn't been updated in a couple months. Like who did the last, what were all the code changes and like what's changed compared to what's documented? Let me look through that. So there is an archaeological piece there, but it's also going out to people and asking the right questions and building rapport and having relationships with a lot of people. You know, I rarely write code anymore, but the fact that I can sit down and just say, like, just speak geek to me, just word vomit on me, all of your thoughts about this particular feature, 
and I will take it and write it for our users in a way that makes a ton of sense <laughs> to them. And I'll, I'll let you review it. But just like, I'm going to sit down and ask you all the questions that I think you're going to want to talk about as a software developer. I'm going to take that information and translate it. I think there's a really powerful skill there. I find that people with journalism backgrounds or research backgrounds tend to excel really well in technical writing because they, they're they okay with asking those questions, especially if those questions are uncomfortable. Um, sometimes it's people build a feature and you're like, who's going to use this? And the person's like, I don't know. I just thought it was really neat to build this feature. And you're like, okay, that's <laughs> useful to know. Maybe, right. maybe somebody will use it, but I would write that very differently than something that's like... <laughs> There are thousands of users who need to have this feature right now. Asterisk for possible deprecation in the future. I gotcha. <laughs> I think that the difference between archaeology and detective work is the degree to which the, the subject is past tense. How old is the skeleton? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, there's actually there's a really good example in Kubernetes documentation of the kind of forensic near-term archaeology, let's call it, that goes into technical writing. So um, for cluster DNS inheritance, basically the short version of cluster DNS inheritance is that you can set nodes of a cluster, you can indicate whether those nodes should inherit the, the cluster DNS policy uh, when those nodes are spun up. And there is a value called default for whether or not uh, nodes should inherit DNS policy from the cluster. There is a value called default. The default value is not default. <laughs> and finding out why that was the case and which SIG um, special interest group in Kubernetes, like which, which particular set of developers maintains this feature? Is it SIG node? Is it SIG cluster? Is it SIG API machinery? Who owns this and how do we deal with it? How did it come to be that this was the case? And if you look at the documentation for cluster DNS policy, all of that archaeology is summed up, I think, in a call out that's two sentences long that says the value of default is not the default value. But that's the kind of like eight hours of forensic work that goes into a two line sentence. And, you know, that's whenever I have to explain, like, why is technical writing valuable? You know, that's only two sentences. Why, why did it take you eight hours to do it? It's because of all of the forensic archaeology that goes into that kind of knowledge. And that's also where like a re good relationship building is important because it's like, because you, because then you, you get a bunch of user feedback that's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And you look at it and like, I'm like, I'm a rational person. This also doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I need to surface this to the developers who wrote it and say like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Like I understand why historically this happened, but you should change this. So there's a lot of like feedback cycles that, that we sort of facilitate as writers. It is a conversation that we're constantly having between our users and the engineers who wrote the code to begin with. And it's not just a one-way bullhorn that we're sort of shouting our features out to folks. No, and it's one of the real values of technical writing. And one of the reasons I think why we won't be automated out of a job anytime soon is because we sit in that intermediate space where you know, we are advocating on behalf of users. We're also in direct conversation with the developers and we have a chance to help affect the decision-making upstream to keep things like that from happening again, or like the patterns that produce that, you know, having a chance to disrupt those and make a, a better user experience. I mean, the best documentation is the kind you don't have to write and being able to improve the user interaction before it ever 
comes to the phase where it needs to be documented. That's a value that technical writers add. Right. One day you'll be able to delete that line that says the default value is not default. <laughs> right. Because the product is better. Right. <laughs> That's so. why you want to write that. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow and saved a question from the dustbin of history. Thanks today to Martine Peters, how to forward declare prototype a function in Python, awarded just eight hours ago. So appreciate that. This question is almost eight years old and has been viewed 30,000 times. So really helping out. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. We'll shout you out on the show. And if you like what you heard, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post that you want to write for us, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Jared Bati, a technical writer at Alphabets and co-author of Docs for Developers, an engineer's field guide to technical writing, which you can find at docsfordevelopers.com. And you're welcome to follow me for tech writing tips and general tech writing chats at uh, Jared Bati on Twitter. And I'm Zachary Sarah Corlison. I am a technical writer at Stripe docsfordevelopers.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, I really can't recommend it. But if uh, if you do, for whatever reason, want to follow me on Twitter, that's Zach uh, with an H, Z-A-C-H, or Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, uh, at Twitter. All right. Follow at your own risk, people. You heard it. All right, everybody. <laughs> thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. <laughs>